Hello and welcome to the Bayside Sermon Series Podcast. I'm your host, Marcus Duckworth, Media and Technical Director here at Bayside. This week, we meet with Pastor Dave Ritter as we discuss Isaiah 49, 1-7. I hope you enjoy our conversation today. This week on the podcast, we are discussing Isaiah 49 with Pastor Dave Ritter. So before we get started with the discussion guide questions, Pastor Dave, can you give us a little backstory on who Isaiah is and where he fits on the timeline of Old Testament history? So Isaiah is a prophet of God who served um, about 700 years before the time of Christ. This would have been about the time when uh, the northern kingdom of Israel had been taken into captivity uh, by Assyria. And anticipating by another hundred years or so the eventual uh, captivity of the southern kingdom um, conquered by Babylon about 586 BC. So uh, Isaiah is in between those times. He's obviously communicating a message of warning uh, to God's people that if they persist in the rebellion, bad things are going to happen. And yet, in the midst of it all, he offers hope, and the hope is in the form of the Messiah, who will eventually come bringing salvation to his people. Many of us are more familiar with the passages of Isaiah that deal with the the birth of Jesus. We hear it a lot in uh, the work of Handel's Messiah. Uh, A lot of that is pulled from Isaiah, talking about the virgin birth and uh, how he's going to come to us, and and the the yoke is easy, and the burden is light. Those kind of things come from other parts of Isaiah? That's true, yeah. We typically are more familiar with the the Christmas parts of Isaiah, if you will. Isaiah 7, Isaiah 9, uh, a virgin will conceive and bear a son. You shall call his name Emmanuel. Uh, We're not as familiar with the Easter parts of Isaiah, and they're presented primarily in the form of what we call the servant songs, uh, four passages that uh, talk about the coming of Messiah and describing him as the servant of the Lord. Uh, so yeah, Pastor Ken dealt with the first of the servant songs in chapter 42, and this past week we dealt with the second of the servant songs in Isaiah 49. So in the sermon you listed four ways that we might underestimate Jesus, and this was a, a, a mistake on my end, the first service uh, I had missed uh, point four in the slide, so I apologize uh, to those of you who had missed that. But let's go over those four points. That uh, he is a revealer of truth who was uh, who hidden from view, and that's verse one and two. He is the seeming failure who has brought glory to God, verses three and four. He is the Messiah of Israel who saves the whole world, that's verses five and six. And here's the fourth point. He is the one man rejected before whom all will bow. And that's verse 7. Yeah, so going to that first point, he's the revealer of truth who is hidden from view. Isaiah uses these interesting uh, metaphors to describe the servant of the Lord in verse 1. Uh, actually, he, he begins verse 1 by saying, The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother he named my name, which is exactly what we know happened when Gabriel came to Mary 
and said, uh, you're, you're going to have a child in your womb, and you're going to call his name Jesus. Uh, so uh, Luke one thirty one is it is an exact fulfillment of what Isaiah said of the servant of the Lord in uh, Isaiah forty nine one, and then the the servant of the Lord himself uh, describes his ministry. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. Uh, he made me like a polished arrow. So those are two images that that refer to the sharpness of his words. Uh, the strange thing is that he follows that up by talking about the hiddenness of the servant of the Lord at the same time. So he made my mouth like a sharp sword in the shadow of his hand. He hid me. So this is like a, a sharp sword in the hand of God, but he's got it kind of tucked away in a way that, that isn't apparent uh, to view. Um, he is uh, like a polished arrow. So he's like a, a very sharp arrow uh, in his quiver. He hid me away. So it's kind of this... This strange juxtaposition of, of sharp communication and hiddenness at the same time. But as we said in the sermon, uh, that's exactly the way Jesus' ministry was carried out. Uh, he spoke powerful words. Uh, people had never heard authoritative teaching like this. They were words that were convicting, words that brought about repentance, and words that especially stung the religious leaders of the day because so many of his teachings were pointed at them and their hypocrisy. And yet at the same time, it wasn't apparent to everybody who he was. He, he was kind of hidden from view. Um, and, and that was on purpose. Jesus, uh, Jesus told people after healing them, for instance, don't tell anybody. Uh, why? Well, it appears that there is a certain uh, importance to the timing of the revelation of his messiahship, knowing that that if he went very big and bold claiming Messiah right from the front end, it would precipitate uh, an early demise. Uh, the, the, the authorities would put him to death. Um, and he had work to do. So he had three years of ministry before it reached that critical point. And in fact, it was that very claim of, of him being Messiah that finally did put him to the cross. So, uh, yeah, there was, there was this, this potency to his teaching and at the same time, people were a little mystified about who he really was. They just, they just didn't quite put it together. And, and Jesus kind of kept it that way. He, he wanted it to be uh, that way because he didn't want to precipitate a premature confrontation with the leadership of Israel. So it's just remarkable that, you know, 700 years before Jesus ever arrived on the scene, uh, he was given these descriptions of the, the servant of the Lord, the Messiah, that exactly correspond with how Jesus carried out his ministry. So let's dive into the discussion points. The first question you had was given an example of who was underestimated by others and the dangers that we can see. And and throughout history, we, we see that underestimating certain political leaders, we, we saw that in the 1940s, we've seen that in Russia, We've had our issues with different leaders here in the U.S. that we are presented with this good intentions, these ideals of here's how we're going to make our nation better and stronger. And the maybe unintended consequences of that is that we we are led down paths of destruction. And as we're always in a, an election cycle and those kind of things, we have we are constantly bombarded with these these thoughts of who's going to be the better leader. And we know that a lot of people have suffered because of these consequences. 
Yeah, so you alluded to the 1940s, and obviously a lot of people underestimated Adolf Hitler. Um, uh, you know, he looked like he was doing a lot of good for his people. Little did they know that he was planning all kinds of disastrous, sinister stuff, uh, attempting to conquer all of Europe and and uh, and, and conducting the Holocaust. Uh, it it was it was rather disastrous the way the world the world leadership uh, underestimated the, the problems that Hitler would pose. What we have in Jesus, however, is kind of the inside out of that. Uh, and, and I compared it to rather somebody like Abraham Lincoln, where people didn't think he was much to be reckoned with, and he turned out to be this president of steely resolve that accomplished all kinds of amazing things, like winning a war and ending slavery. And I would put Jesus in that category. Um, Obviously, the people who underestimated Abraham Lincoln paid a dear price. <laughs> you know, the, the Confederate leadership, uh, for one. Uh, they, they were on the wrong side of history. And I think the point that we're making is that if, if you underestimate Jesus, you're going to end up on the wrong side of history. You're going to end up on the wrong side of, of uh, the, the eternal equation regarding uh, your, your destiny. Um, yeah, so... You're right. There are leaders that you can underestimate uh, who end up doing horrible things and other leaders who you might not think anything good will come of them. And and Jesus is certainly of that category of, of one who accomplished amazing things as a result of, of who he was, even though people didn't see him that way. Uh, and and uh, put it this way, uh, they were the losers yeah. for for having underestimated him the way they did. Yeah. And of, of those four ways that the, the servant of the Lord, Messiah, might be underestimated, you alluded to this earlier, it, it was his humility caused him to be underestimated. So he came from a nondescript family from Nazareth, and Nazareth it was always described as uh, a place that no good could come from. He didn't command any armies to fight the Roman oppression. Uh, in Matthew, Jesus himself says that to take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest in my soul. That's that's not a typical type of leader that 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 strikes up masses of people that that want to follow and fight and change the world. And that was not his way. His humility, his servanthood, uh, is is what made him so attractive, uh, and not to the powerful. It made him attractive to those who were oppressed. Yeah, and, you know, <laughs> Isaiah alludes to the fact that, uh, well, that's the second way he's underestimated in, in the servant song here. Uh, he is the seeming failure <clears throat> who has brought glory to God. <clears throat> so so <clears throat> in verse um, two, uh, 3, the, the Lord says to the servant, You are my servant Israel in whom I am glorified. He is the embodiment of all that Israel was meant to be in terms of being a blessing uh, to the world. And, and Israel never seemed to be able to fulfill that promise until Jesus came along, the Messiah. Um, and, and yet the, the, the servant answers back and says, I don't, feel like, I don't feel like I've brought you any glory. I feel like I've, I've labored in vain. I've, I've spent my strength for nothing and for vanity, uh, which is very likely reflection of how Jesus must have felt when his followers all deserted him, when Peter denied three times even knowing him, when he's all alone facing the horrors of the 
the cross. Uh, and yet in Hebrews it says, but for the joy set before him, he endured all of that. And, and Isaiah has the servant coming back and saying, yeah, I, I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing and, and vanity. It feels like it's all, all gone for nothing. Yet surely my right is with the Lord. In other words, the, I'm counting on the Lord to vindicate me in all this. My recompense with my God. Uh, God is going to reward my faithfulness in this. And, and that's the means by which then he brings glory to the Father, by being faithful even to the point of death on the cross, uh, because that's what results in our salvation. So a seeming failure, and yet he brings glory to God. Uh, you know, when he's, he's dying on the cross, his enemies can gloat and say, ha, some Messiah you turned out to be. Uh, little did they know that it was his hum humility and his brokenness that was accomplishing uh, the glory that, that God had in mind all along. Yeah, I think John records some of this frustration in, in chapter 14. You know, Jesus is explaining to, to the disciples what's about to happen. And he says, that, you know, I'm going away. And the disciples are like, where are you going? We don't know that way. And Jesus says that if you had known me, you'd know who the Father was also. And this is where, you know, Philip, uh, who must have been in competition with Thomas for the most doubtful disciple, or Peter for the disciple who says ridiculous things, he's like, show us the Father and that's enough for us. They, they clearly, after three years, still didn't get it. Yeah. Uh, and it would take a while for them to get it, right? Uh, they, it, it, would re, it would require uh, witnessing him dying on the cross and then seeing him alive from the grave before they'd start to understand who he really was and how, how he was going to accomplish the glory of the Father, not, not by conquering with armies, but by defeating sin and death, giving his life on the cross and rising again. So, yeah, even his, even his own disciples... Uh, underestimated him in that way. Let's move on to verse 5 and 6. Those are the verses that explain that the job of Messiah being bigger than anyone had expected uh, to that point. So he's here he's talking about fulfilling the promise God had made with Abraham. Uh, this is what the we call the Great Commission. This is Matthew 28, uh, 19 and 20 and Acts 1, 8. Yeah, and it begins with the, the Lord uh, speaking again to the servant. Uh, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. He, he's, he's commenting on this is, this is the, the task that I've been given from the womb. He mentioned, you know, being, being commissioned essentially from the womb back in verse, uh, verse 1. And now he's saying, and here it is. This is the work I've been given to do from the womb, and that is to, to bring Jacob. That's uh, another way of speaking of Israel bringing Israel back to the Lord, that Israel might be gathered to him. And, and in that respect, he says, um, you know, what a great honor. I'm honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. But then in verse 6, it's like the, the Lord says, oh, wait a minute. That's not all I have in mind for you to do. Uh, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob. Um, it's not not enough that that you serve me this way for the benefit of just Israel and and uh, to bring back the preserved of Israel. He, he says, finally, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And and, I, and again, yeah, that's what the leadership of Israel certainly didn't understand when, when they read 
Isaiah, they should have seen it, but they didn't. Uh, they kept assuming that Messiah was for them, their Savior, uh, their salvation. And uh, God is saying to the servant, yeah, but also for the rest of the world. Um, and, and so, you know, Jesus seems to understand this exclusivity mm-hmm. of, of the Messiah being for Israel when he says to the Gentile woman, um, yeah, no, I can't do what you're asking because I was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And she very wisely says, uh, but, you know, don't even the dogs get the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Yep. And Jesus says, man, I, I haven't seen any faith like this in all of Israel. And for that, I'm going to do what you ask. So Jesus Jesus kind of puts that woman to the test uh, and and finally does serve her needs. You see his his going out of the boundaries of Israel for the woman at the well in John chapter 4, the Samaritan woman who, who he in, encounters and speaks of salvation. Um, and, and then, of course, in speaking to Nicodemus in John 3, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Uh, Jesus, Jesus knew that he wasn't just for he knew he was for Israel. He was Messiah. He was Israel's Messiah, but he knew he was more than that. And uh, that's why when he commissions his disciples, as you've alluded to, Matthew 28, 19 and 20, go therefore make disciples of all the nations. And at his ascension, he says, you shall be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. And and that's that ends of the earth concept is right out of Isaiah 49 here. Uh, my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So, uh, yeah, that's, that, that's another way that Jesus was sometimes, or the Messiah, uh, the, the whole idea of Messiah was underestimated. People thought Messiah was for Israel. Uh, but God is saying, yeah, the Messiah is for Israel, but not just Israel. Uh, you know, Messiah is going to serve my purposes so that my salvation can go to the ends of the earth. And that's, that's pretty cool because that includes us. Right, right. In verse 7, you ask the question, how is the servant treated by important people? And for most cultures throughout human history, servants uh, have been treated as something less than, whether it's slavery, caste system, prisoners of war, uh, even down to the people that work in the service industry at your local restaurant. But what's different about Jesus as a servant is that he is the servant of God, uh, how will they eventually see him? It was was the question you're you're posing. You know, what did Paul say about Jesus in this this regard? And you alluded uh, to Philippians two five through eleven. Yeah. So Paul Paul talks about how you know Jesus didn't consider equality with God something to grasp, but but made himself a servant, emptied himself, uh, and made himself a servant even to the point of death on a cross. Um, if he had been a powerful king, he never would have been treated the way he was treated. But, but because of the lowly way he came, um, yeah, they they treated him like a peasant he was, <laughs> even though he was the the eternal Son of God in human flesh. Um, he he was treated like like a not only a servant but a common criminal, nailed to a cross. Uh, and, and Isaiah said, that's what you should expect, right? So uh, verse 7 says, Thus says the, the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, 
to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. And that's, that's pretty much exactly how Jesus was seen. Uh, the rulers of Israel uh, despised him, uh, abhorred by the nation, his own people, clamored for his crucifixion. Uh, the servant of rulers, well, you know, the Romans were used to nailing peasants to the cross. And so that's how they treated Jesus. And yet, the, the turning point comes at the end of verse 7. Kings shall see and arise. In other words, this one who is abhorred, despised, and, and uh, mistreated this way by anybody of any importance in, in this world, uh, this is the one who will make kings stand up and salute. <laughs> They they will stand in in reverence to him. Uh, it reminds me of the story about um, the Queen of England, who went to hear Handel's Messiah, and uh, when the Hallelujah chorus began, she she was so uh, moved by the music that she stood to her feet in reverence of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and and when the Queen stands, everybody stands, and so that's the beginning of the tradition that's carried on to this very day, that when the Hallelujah Chorus begins to play, uh, the audience rises to their feet in, in reverence to the king. And, and uh, so, you know, Isaiah is referring to that. Kings shall see and arise, uh, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves. Uh, they'll realize that standing to attention before him isn't enough. They, they, they're not even worthy to stand in his presence, so they will, they will prostrate themselves at his feet, uh, because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you, because the hand of God is on him. And, and ultimately, there's coming a day when, when people will acknowledge that. And so Paul goes on to say that, um, that even as he humbled himself, God will highly exalt him, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, and, uh, in, whether in heaven or on earth or under the earth. So that's, uh, you know, whether you're, you're living or whether you've gone to your eternal reward, either in heaven or hell, every creature in the universe uh, at, the, at the name of Jesus will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Uh, there, there is coming a day when the identity of Jesus and his, his absolute supremacy will be indisputable such that every creature who's ever lived will be forced to confess that he is Lord. And, uh, and that's, that's a pretty dramatic turnaround. Mm -hmm. so, so even people today who, who scoff at Jesus, who despise Jesus, who use his name as a curse word, are going to be pretty surprised when one day they find themselves on their knees uh, admitting that he is the Lord. Uh, the Savior of mankind. Um, tragically, for, for some, many, it, at that stage will be too late um, because they will have failed to confess him, uh, Lord, in this life. Um, they'll, they'll sure know it then. <laughs> right. But it's, uh, it's, a, a, it's going to be a scary prospect uh, if you're forced to confess him as Lord on that day. Now, one of the takeaways that we have from this passage in, in Philippians, a lot of people read that 
and and get a little confused about how that might have affected the Trinity. And just to be clear that even though Jesus emptied himself, it does not mean that he left the Trinity when he came to earth. He did not take on a lesser part of the Godhead. On the, the surface level, it may look like there was a change in, in his power and authority that that's not where where the scripture takes us. Yeah, without getting too complicated, uh, there is a lot of debate about what exactly went on there when Jesus became a man and he emptied himself. Well, you're right. He didn't empty himself of deity. Uh, we typically say he emptied himself of the, the independent exercise of his divine prerogatives. So that, that means uh, during the time of, of his uh, living among us, tabernacling with us, as John puts it, uh, as a man, uh, he, he, didn't, um, he didn't exercise his divine attributes unless it was within the will of the Father. So people ask him, you know, when, when is this coming of yours going to happen? And he says, I don't know, only the Father knows. Uh, he, he had laid aside the exercise of that prerogative to know all things. Um, uh, you know, when he performs miracles, uh, he, he, he doesn't do them independently of the Father. He does them in the power that the Father supplies at the appropriate times and places for him to, to do those things because it serves the Father's purpose. So, um, so you see the Son living as a man in utter submission to the Father's will and relying on the power of the Spirit to accomplish the things that he needs to do in the flesh. Um, but he never stops being God the Son. Um, you know, for the sake of his earthly ministry, he lays aside certain prerogatives for that time. Thank you for helping to, to, to solidify that. Yeah. All right. Uh, the final question in the discussion guide was to... Uh, ask about how we still today underestimate Jesus and and the dangers of that. And one thing that comes to mind for me is um, the way many people doubt his ability to save them, to make them whole. Uh, the idea that they may be too far gone or they're not good enough. Uh, and that was one of the, the testimonies that was shared this week in the baptisms. Yeah, Sam, Sam gave a beautiful testimony of uh, coming to faith in Christ, you know, in his late 80s, he's now 90, and um, uh, of thinking that he had done too many bad things for God to save him. And uh, as, as we talked to him about the work of Christ and, and assured him uh, that, that what Jesus did on the cross was sufficient even for him, he put his faith in Christ and, and was just baptized. It was a beautiful thing to see. And I think people sometimes will go the other way, too, in underestimating Jesus, underestimating their need for him. Yeah. Um, so that, you know, uh, you know, a lot of people go around thinking, well, I'm a, I'm a good person. You know, I do good things. I'm, I'm a lot better than a lot of other people. Uh, you know, not realizing that the scripture says, no, we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've all, we've all violated God's holy law. We're all worthy of death, uh, of condemnation. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, a lot of people say, well, you know, Jesus was a, a great moral teacher, but I don't need him as a savior. Well, that is one of the worst ways you can underestimate him, uh, to think that somehow you're sufficient to earn your own salvation. Um, you know, Jesus came and gave his life so that you could be forgiven of your sin. And, and if, if people don't grasp that, then, 
then they've underestimated Jesus in, in one of the most tragic ways of all. Uh, yeah, so I think I think some of the ways that we underestimate him today are 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 the way you said he's, he can't possibly save me. I'm I'm a wretch, or he he, he doesn't need to save me. I'm I'm a good person. Um, we see him more as a, a moral teacher and not as the one upon whom we must depend for salvation. Or we see him as as um, uh, the obsession of religious people and not someone that that you know we should submit to as Lord. Uh, but if if we properly understand who Jesus is, uh, and 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 we are disabused of some of these ways of underestimating him, then I think we'll we'll come to the conclusion that the best thing we can do is to fully embrace him as our Savior and submit to him as our Lord. Next week, uh, Pastor James is preaching. So what should we expect from from Pastor James next week? Well, James is moving into uh, the third of the servant songs and uh, Isaiah 50. So you might, uh, in preparation for next week, uh, read Isaiah 50. Okay. All right. Well, that's going to conclude our time for this week. Thank you, Pastor Dave, for joining us. And we look forward to our next couple of weeks. In two weeks, we have our Palm Sunday service and then our Easter services. Again, for those who would be joining us, we will have a Good Friday service at 7 p.m. on the 7th, and then three services on Easter Sunday, 8.30, 10, and 11.30. We look forward to seeing all of you there. What a blessing it would be to share that with a neighbor. We'll have cards at the front desks this week for you to take home, pass out to your neighbors. Thank you again for joining our conversation and have a blessed week.